Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 52 of Far From the Madding Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. Far From the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter 52. Converging Courses. 1. Christmas Eve came, and the party that Boldwood was to give in the evening was the great subject of talk in Weatherbury. It was not that the rarity of Christmas parties in their parish made this one a wonder, but that Boldwood should be the giver. The announcement had had an abnormal and incongruous sound, as if one should hear of croquet playing in the cathedral aisle, or that some much-respected judge was going upon the stage. That the party was intended to be a truly jovial one there was no room for doubt. A large bough of mistletoe had been brought from the woods that day, and suspended in the hall of the bachelor's home. Holly and Ivy had followed in armfuls. From six that morning till past noon the huge wood fire in the kitchen roared and sparkled at its highest, the kettle, the saucepan, and the three-legged pot appearing in the midst of the flames like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Moreover, roasting and basting operations were continually carried on in front of the genial blaze. As it grew later, the fire was made up in the large long hall, into which the staircase descended, and all encumbrances were cleared out for dancing. The log, which was to form the back-brand of the evening fire, was the uncleft trunk of a tree, so unwieldy that it could be neither brought nor rolled into its place and, accordingly, two men were to be observed dragging and heaving it in by chains and levers as the hour of assembly grew near. In spite of all this, the spirit of revelry was wanting in the atmosphere of the house. Such a thing had never been attempted before by its owner, and it was now done as by a wrench. Intended gaieties would insist upon appearing like solemn grandeurs. The organization of the whole effort was carried out coldly, by hirelings, and a shadow seemed to move about the rooms, saying that the proceedings were unnatural to the place, and the lone man who lived therein, and hence not good. 2. Bathsheba was at this time in her room, dressing for the event. She had called for candles, and Liddy entered, and placed one on each side of her mistress's glass. "'Don't go away, Liddy,' said Bathsheba, almost timidly. I am foolishly agitated. I cannot tell why. I wish I had not been obliged to go to this dance, but there is no escaping now. I have not spoken to Mr. Boldwood since the autumn, when I promised to see him at Christmas on business, but I had no idea there was to be anything of this kind. But I would go now, said Liddy, who was going with her, for Boldwood had been indiscriminate in his invitations. Yes, I shall make my appearance, of course, said Bathsheba. "'But I am the cause of the party, and that upsets me. "'Don't tell, Liddy.' "'Oh, no, ma'am. "'You the cause of it, ma'am?' "'Yes, I am the reason for the party. "'I. "'If it had not been for me, there would never have been one. "'I cannot explain any more. "'There's no more to be explained. "'I wish I had never seen Weatherbury.' "'That's wicked of you, to wish to be worse off than you are.' "'No, Liddy, I have never been free from trouble since I have lived here.' and this party is likely to bring me more. Now, 
fetch my black silk dress and see how it sits upon me. But you will leave off that, surely, ma'am. You have been a widow lady fourteen months, and ought to brighten up a little on such a night as this. Is it necessary? No, I will appear as usual, for if I were to wear any light dress, people would say things about me, and I should seem to be rejoicing when I am solemn all the time. The party doesn't suit me a bit. But never mind. Stay and help to finish me off. 3. Boldwood was dressing also at this hour. A tailor from Casterbridge was with him, assisting him in the operation of trying on a new coat that had just been brought home. Never had Boldwood been so fastidious, unreasonable about the fit, and generally difficult to please. The tailor walked round and round him, tugging at the waist, pulling the sleeve, pressing out the collar, and for the first time in his experience Boldwood was not bored. Times had been when the farmer had exclaimed against all such niceties as childish, but now no philosophic or hasty rebuke whatever was provoked by this man for attaching as much importance to a crease in the coat as to an earthquake in South America. Boldwood at last expressed himself nearly satisfied and paid the bill, the tailor passing out of the door just as Oak came in, to report progress for the day. "'Oh, Oak,' said Boldwood, "'I shall of course see you here to-night.' Make yourself merry. I am determined that neither expense nor trouble shall be spared. "'I'll try to be here, sir, though perhaps it may not be very early,' said Gabriel quietly. "'I am glad to see such a change in ye from what I used to be.' "'Yes, I must own it. I am bright to-night, and cheerful, and more than cheerful, so much so that I am almost sad again with the sense that all of this is passing away, and sometimes, when I am excessively hopeful and blithe, a trouble is looming in the distance.' so that I often get to look upon gloom in me with content, and to fear a happy mood. Still, this may be absurd. I feel that it is absurd. Perhaps my day is dawning, at last. I hope it will be a long and a fair one. Thank you, thank you. Yet perhaps my cheerfulness rests on a slender hope. And yet I trust my hope. It is faith, not hope. I think this time I reckon with my host. Oak, my hands are a little shaky or something. I can't tie this neckerchief properly. Perhaps you will tie it for me. The fact is, I have not been well lately, you know. I'm sorry to hear that, sir. Oh, it's nothing. I want it done as well as you can, please. Is there any late knot in fashion, Oak? I don't know, sir, said Oak. His tone had sunk to sadness. Boldwood approached Gabriel, and as Oak tied the neckerchief, the farmer went on feverishly. Does a woman keep her promises, Gabriel? If it is not inconvenient to her, she may. Or rather, an implied promise. I won't answer for her employing, said Oak, with faint bitterness. That's a word as full of holes as a sieve with them. Oak, don't talk like that. You have got quite cynical lately. How is it? We seem to have shifted our positions. I have become the young and hopeful man, and you the old and unbelieving one. However, does a woman keep a promise, not to marry, but to enter on an engagement to marry at some time? Now you know women better than I. Tell me. I am afraid you honour my understanding too much. However, she may keep such a promise, if it is made with an honest meaning to repair a wrong. It has not gone far yet, but I think it soon will. Yes, I know it will, he said, in an impulsive whisper. I have pressed upon her the subject, and she inclines to be kind to me, and to think of me as a husband at a long future time, and that's enough for me. How can I expect more? She has a notion that a woman should not marry within seven years of her husband's disappearance, 
that her own self shouldn't, I mean, because his body was not found. It may be merely this legal reason which influences her, or it may be a religious one, but she is reluctant to talk on the point. Yet she has promised, implied, that she will ratify an engagement to-night. Seven years, murmured Oak. No, no, it's no such thing, he said with impatience. Five years, nine months, and, and a few days. Fifteen months nearly have passed since he vanished. And is there anything so wonderful in an engagement of little more than five years? It seems long in a forward view. Don't build too much upon such promises, sir. Remember, you have once been deceived. Her meaning may be good, but there, she's young yet. Deceived? Never, said Boldwood vehemently. She never promised me at that first time, and hence she did not break her promise. If she promises me, she'll marry me. Bathsheba is a woman to her word. 4. Troy was sitting in a corner of the White Hart Tavern at Casterbridge, smoking and drinking a steaming mixture from a glass. A knock was given at the door, and Pennyways entered. "'Well, have you seen him?' Troy inquired, pointing to a chair. "'Boldwood?' "'No, lawyer long.' "'He wasn't at home. I went there first, too.' "'That's a nuisance.' "'Tis rather, I suppose.' Yet I don't see that because a man appears to be drowned, and was not, he should be liable for anything. I shan't ask any lawyer, not I. But that's not it exactly. If a man changes his name and so forth, and takes steps to deceive the world and his own wife, he's a cheat. And that in the eye of the law is always a rogue, and that is always a lamican vagabond, and that's a punishable situation. <laughs> well done, Pennyways. Troy had laughed but it was with some anxiety that he said, "'Now, what I want to know is this. Do you think there's really anything going on between her and Boldwood? Upon my soul, I should never have believed it. How she must detest me! Have you found out whether she has encouraged him?' "'I hadn't been able to learn. There's a deal of feeling on his side, seemingly, but I don't answer for her. I didn't know a word about any such thing till yesterday, and all I heard then was that she was going to the party at his house to-night. This is the first time she has ever gone there, they say. And they say that she has not so much as spoke to him since they were at Greenhill Fair. But what can folk believe of it? However, she's not fond of him. Quite offish and quite careless, I know. I'm not so sure of that. She's a handsome woman, Pennyways, is she not? Own that you never saw a finer or more splendid creature in your life. Upon my honour, when I set eyes upon her that day, I wondered what I could have been made of to be able to leave her by herself so long. And then I was hampered with that bothering show, which I'm free of at last, thank the stars. He smoked on a while, and then added, How did she look when you passed by yesterday? Oh, she took no great heed of me, you may well fancy, but she looked well enough, far as I know. Just flashed her haughty eyes upon my poor scram body, then let them go past me to what was beyond, much as if I'd be no more than a leafless tree. She had just got off her mare to look at the last ring-down of cider for the year. She had been riding, and so the colours were up, and her breath rather quick, so that her bosom plimmed and fell, plimmed and fell, every time plain to my eye. Aye, and there were the fellers round her, ringing down the cheese, and bustling about, and saying, "'Wear it upon me, ma'am, t'will spoil your gown.' "'Never mind me,' said she. Then Gabe brought her some of the new cider, and she must needs go drinking it through a straw moat, and not in a natural way at all. "'Liddy,' said she, Bring indoors a few gallons, and I'll make some cider wine. 
Sergeant, I was no more to her than a morsel of scruff in the fuel-house. I must go and find her out at once. Yes, I see that. I must go. Oak is headman still, isn't he? Yes, I believe. And at Little Weatherby Farm, too, he manages everything. Twill puzzle him to manage her, or any other man of his compass. I don't know about that. She can't do without him, and knowing it well, he's pretty independent. And she've a few soft corners to her mind, though I've never been able to get into one. The devil's in it. Ah, Bailey, she's a notch above you, and you must own it. A higher class of animal, a finer tissue. However, stick to me, and neither this haughty goddess, dashing piece of womanhood, Juno, wife of mine, Juno was a goddess, you know, or anybody else shall hurt you. But all this wants looking into, I perceive. What with one thing and another, I see that my work is well cut out for me. 5. How do I look to-night, Liddy? said Bathsheba, giving a final adjustment to her dress before leaving the glass. I never saw you look so well before. Yes, I'll tell you when you look like it. That night, a year and a half ago, when you came in so wild-like, and scolded us for making remarks about you and Mr. Troy. Everybody will think that I'm setting myself to captivate Mr. Boldwood, I suppose, she murmured. At least they'll say so. Can't my hair be brushed down a little flatter? I dread going, yet I dread the risk of wounding him by staying away. Anyhow, ma'am, you can't well be dressed any plainer than you are, unless you go in a sackcloth at once. Tis your excitement is what makes you look so noticeable to-night. I don't know what's the matter. I feel wretched at one time and buoyant at another. I wish I could have continued quite alone as I have been for the last year or so, with no hopes and no fears, and no pleasure and no grief. Now just suppose Mr. Boldwood should ask you, only just suppose it, to run away with him. What would you do, ma'am? Liddy, none of that, said Bathsheba gravely. Mind, I won't hear joking on any such matter. Do you hear? I beg pardon, ma'am, but knowing what rum things we women be, I just said, uh, however, I won't speak of it again. No marrying for me yet for many a year, if ever. "'Twill be for reasons very, very different from those you think, or others will believe. Now get my cloak, for it's time to go. Six. "'Oak,' said Boldwood, "'before you go I want to mention what has been passing in my mind lately, that little arrangement we made about your share of the farm, I mean. That share is small, too small, considering how little I attend to business now, and how much time and thought you give to it.' Well, since the world is brightening for me, I want to show my sense of it by increasing your proportion in the partnership. I'll make a memorandum of the arrangement which struck me as likely to be convenient, for I haven't time to talk about it now, and then we'll discuss it at our leisure. My intention is ultimately to retire from the management altogether, and until you can take all the expenditure upon your shoulders, I'll be a sleeping partner in the stock. Then, if I marry her, and I hope, I feel I shall, why— "'Pray, don't speak of it, sir,' said Oak hastily. "'We don't know what may happen. "'So many upsets may be folly. "'There's many a slip, as they say, "'and I would advise you, "'I know you'll pardon me this once, "'not to be too sure.' "'I know, I know, "'but the feeling I have about increasing your share "'is on account of what I know of you. "'Oak, I have learnt a little about your secret. "'Your interest in her is more than that of a bailiff or an employer, "'but you have behaved like a man.' And I, as a sort of successful rival, successful partly through your goodness of heart, should like definitely to show my sense of your friendship, under what must have been a great pain to you. Oh, that's not necessary, thank ye. 
said Oak hurriedly. "'I must get used to such as that. Other men have, and so shall I.' Oak then left him. He was uneasy on Boldwood's account, for he saw and knew that this constant passion of the farmer made him not the man he had once been. As Boldwood continued a while in his room alone, ready and dressed to receive his company, the mood of anxiety about his appearance seemed to pass away, and to be succeeded by a deep solemnity. He looked out of the window, and regarded the dim outline of the trees upon the sky and the twilight deepening to darkness. He went to a locked closet and took from a locked drawer therein a small circular case the size of a pill-box, and was about to put it in his pocket. But he lingered to open the cover and take a momentary glance inside. It contained a woman's finger-ring, set all the way round with small diamonds, and from its appearance had evidently been recently purchased. Boldwood's eyes dwelt upon its many sparkles a long time though that its material aspect concerned him little was plain from his manner and mien, which were those of a mind following out the presumed thread of that jewel's future history. The noise of wheels at the front of the house became audible. Boldwood closed the box, stowed it away carefully in his pocket, and went out upon the landing. The old man, who was his indoor factotum, came at the same moment to the foot of the stairs. "'They be coming, sir. Lots of em. A foot and a drivin'. I was coming down this moment. Those wheels I heard. Is it Mrs. Troy? No, sir, tis not she yet. A reserved and sombre expression had returned to Boldwood's face again, but it poorly cloaked his feelings when he pronounced Bathsheba's name, and his feverish anxiety continued to show its existence by a galloping motion of his fingers upon the side of his thigh as he went down the stairs. 7. How does this cover me? said Troy to Pennyways. Nobody would recognize me now, I'm sure. He was buttoning on a heavy grey overcoat of no Asian cut, with cape and high collar, the latter being erect and rigid, like a girdling wall, and nearly reaching the verge of the travelling cap which was pulled down over his ears. Pennyways snuffed the candle, and then looked up and deliberately inspected Troy. "'You've made up your mind to go, then?' he said. "'Made up my mind?' "'Yes, of course I have.' "'Why not write to her? "'Tis a very queer corner that you've got into, Sergeant. "'You see, all these things will come to light if you go back, "'and they won't sound well at all. "'Faith, if I was you, I'd even bide as you be, "'a single man of the name of Francis. "'A good wife is good, "'but the best wife is not so good as no wife at all. "'Now that's my outspoke mind, "'and I've been called a long-headed feller here and there.' "'All nonsense,' said Troy angrily. "'There she is with plenty of money, and a house and farm and horses and comfort, and here am I, living from hand to mouth, a needy adventurer. Besides, it is no use talking now. It is too late, and I am glad of it. I have been seen and recognised here this very afternoon. I should have gone back to her the day after the fair, if it hadn't been for you talking about the law and rubbish about getting a separation, and I don't put it off any longer.' What the deuce put it into my head to run away at all, I can't think. Humbugging sentiment, that's what it was. But what man on earth was to know that his wife would be in such a hurry to get rid of his name? I should have known it. She's bad enough for anything. In Pennyways, mind who you are talking to. Well, Sergeant, all I say is this, that if I were you I'd go abroad again where I came from. Tisn't too late to do it now. 
I wouldn't stir up the business and get a bad name for the sake of living with her. For all that about your play-acting is sure to come out, you know, although you think otherwise. My eyes and nims, there'll be a racket if you go back just now, in the middle of Boldwood's Christmasing. Hmm, yes, I expect I shall not be a very welcome guest if he has got her there, said the sergeant with a slight laugh. A sort of Alonzo the Brave. And when I go in the guests will sit in silence and fear, and all laughter and pleasure will be hushed, and the lights in the chamber burn blue, and the worms— Ah, oh, horrible! Ring for some more brandy, Pennyways. I felt an awful shudder just then. Well, what is there besides? A stick. I must have a walking stick. Pennyways now felt himself to be in something of a difficulty, for should Bathsheba and Troy become reconciled, it would be necessary to regain her good opinion, if he would secure the patronage of her husband. I sometimes think she likes you yet, and is a good woman at bottom, he said, as a saving sentence. But there's no telling to a certainty from a body's outside. Well, you'll do as you like about going, of course, sergeant, and as for me, I'll do as you tell me. Now let me see what the time is, said Troy, after emptying his glass in one draught as he stood. Half past six o'clock. I shall not hurry along the road, and shall be there then before nine. End of chapter fifty two. Chapter fifty three of Far from the Madding Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter fifty three. Concurritor Hore Momento Outside the front of Boldwood's house a group of men stood in the dark, with their faces towards the door which occasionally opened and closed for the passage of some guest or servant, when a golden rod of light would stripe the ground for the moment and vanish again, leaving nothing outside but the glow-worm shine of the pale lamp amid the evergreens over the door. "'He was seen in Casterbridge this afternoon.' So the boy said, one of them remarked in a whisper, and I for one believe it. His body was never found, you know. "'Tis a strange story,' said the next. "'You may depend upon it that she knows nothing about it.' "'Not a word.' "'Perhaps he don't mean that she shall,' said another man. "'If he's alive and here in the neighbourhood he means mischief,' said the first. "'Poor young thing. I do pity her if it's true.' He'll drag her to the dogs. Oh, no, he'll settle down quite enough, said one disposed to take a more hopeful view of the case. What a fool she must have been ever to have anything to do with that man. She's so self-willed and independent, too, that one is more minded to say it serves her right than pity her. No, no, I don't hold with ye there. She was no otherwise than a girl, mind. And how could she tell what the man was made of? If tis really true, tis too hard a punishment, and more than she ought to have. Hello, who's that? This was to some footsteps that were heard approaching. William Smallbury, said a dim figure in the shades, coming up and joining them. Dark as a hedge to-night, isn't it? I all but missed a plank over the river at heart, there in the bottom. Never did such a thing before in my life. Be ye any of Boldwood's work-folk? He peered into their faces. "'Yes, all of us. We met here a few minutes ago.' "'Ah, oh, I hear now. That's Sam Samway. I thought he knowed the voice, too. Going in?' 
"'Presently. But I say, William,' Samway whispered, "'have you heard this strange tale?' "'What, about Sergeant Troy being seen, do you mean, souls?' said Smallbury, also lowering his voice. "'Aye, in Casterbridge.' "'Yes, I have. Laban Tall named a hint of it to me but now. But I didn't think it. Hark, here Laban comes himself, I believe.' A footstep drew near. "'Laban?' "'Yes, tis I,' said Tall. "'Have you heard any more about that?' "'No,' said Tall, joining the group. "'And I'm inclined to think we'd better keep quiet. "'If so be tis not true, twill flurry her, "'and do her much harm to repeat it. "'And if so be tis true, "'twill do no good to forestall her time of trouble. "'God send that it may be a lie, "'for though Henry Frey and some of them do speak against her, "'she's never been anything but fair to me.' She's hot and hasty, but she's a brave girl, who'll never tell a lie however much the truth may harm her, and I've no cause to wish her evil. She never do tell women's little lies, that's true, and tis a thing that can be said of very few. Ay, all the harm she thinks she says to your face, there's nothing on the hand with her. They stood silent then, every man busied with his own thoughts, during which interval sounds of merriment could be heard within. Then the front door again opened. The rays streamed out. The well-known form of Boldwood was seen in the rectangular area of light. The door closed, and Boldwood walked slowly down the path. "'Tis master,' one of the men whispered as he neared them. "'We'd better stand quiet. He'll go in again directly. He would think it unseemly of us to be loitering here.' Boldwood came on, and passed by the men without seeing them, they being under the bushes on the grass. He paused, leant over the gate, and breathed a long breath. They heard low words come from him. "'I hope to God she'll come, or this night will be nothing but a misery to me. Oh, my darling, my darling, why do you keep me in suspense like this?' He said this to himself, and they all distinctly heard it. Boldwood remained silent after that, and the noise from indoors was again just audible, until, a few minutes later, Light wheels could be distinguished coming down the hill. They drew nearer and ceased at the gate. Boldwood hastened back to the door and opened it, and the light shone upon Bathsheba coming up the path. Boldwood compressed his emotion to mere welcome. The men marked her light laugh and apology as she met him. He took her into the house, and the door closed again. "'Gracious heaven! I didn't know it was like that with him,' said one of the men. I thought that fancy of his was over long ago. "'You don't know much of Master, if you thought that,' said Samway. "'I wouldn't he should know we heard what I said for the world,' remarked a third. "'I wish we had told of the report at once,' the first uneasily continued. "'More harm may come of this than we know of. Poor Mr. Boldwood, it would be hard upon him. I wish Troy was in—well, God forgive me for such a wish.' A scoundrel to play a poor wife such tricks. Nothing has prospered in Weatherbury since he came here, and now I've no heart to go in. Let's look into Warren's for a few minutes first, shall us, neighbours? Samway, Tall, and Smallbury agreed to go to Warren's, and went out at the gate, the remaining ones entering the house. The three soon drew near the malt-house, approaching it from the adjoining orchard, and not by way of the street. The pane of glass was illuminated as usual. Smallbury was a little in advance of the rest, when, pausing, he turned suddenly to his companions, and said, "'Hist! See there!' 
The light from the pane was now perceived to be shining not upon the ivied wall as usual, but upon some object close to the glass. It was a human face. "'Let's come closer,' whispered Samway, and they approached on tiptoe. There was no disbelieving the report any longer. Troy's face was almost close to the pane, and he was looking in. Not only was he looking in, but he appeared to have been arrested by a conversation which was in progress in the malt-house, the voices of the interlocutors being those of Oak and the maltster. "'The spree is all in her honour, isn't it, hey?' said the old man. "'Although he may believe tis only keeping up a Christmas.' "'I cannot say,' replied Oak. "'Oh, tis true enough, Faith. I cannot understand Farmer Boldwood being such a fool at his time of life as to hoe and hanker after this woman in the way you do, and she not care a bit about him. The men, after recognising Troy's features, withdrew across the orchard as quietly as they had come. The air was big with Bathsheba's fortunes to-night. Every word everywhere concerned her. When they were quite out of earshot, all, by one instinct, paused. "'It gave me quite a turn.' "'His face,' said Tall, breathing. "'And so it did me,' said Samway. "'What's to be done?' "'I don't see that tis any business of ours,' Smallbury murmured dubiously. "'But it is. "'Tis a thing which is everybody's business,' said Samway. "'We know very well that Master's on the wrong track, "'and that she's quite in the dark, "'and we should let him know at once. "'Laban, you know her best. "'You'd better go and ask to speak to her.' "'I bain't fit for any such thing,' said Laban nervously. "'I should think William ought to do it of anybody. He's oldest.' "'I shall have nothing to do with it,' said Smallbury. "'Tis a ticklish business altogether. "'Why, he'll go on to her himself in a few minutes, you'll see.' "'We don't know that he will. Come, Laban.' "'Very well. If I must, I must, I suppose,' Tall reluctantly answered. "'What must I say?' "'Just ask to see Master.' "'Oh, no, I shan't speak to Mr. Boldwood. "'If I tell anybody, twill be mistress.' "'Very well,' said Samway. Laban then went to the door. When he opened it, the hum of bustle rolled out as a wave upon a still strand, the assemblage being immediately inside the hall, and was deadened to a murmur as he closed it again. Each man waited intently, and looked around at the dark tree-tops gently rocking against the sky, and occasionally shivering in a slight wind, as if he took interest in the scene, which neither did. One of them began walking up and down, and then came to where he started from and stopped again, with the sense that walking was a thing not worth doing now. "'I should think Laban must have seen Mistress by this time,' said Smallbury, breaking the silence. "'Perhaps you won't come and speak to him.' The door opened, Tall appeared, and joined them. "'Well?' said both. "'I didn't like to ask her after all,' Laban faltered out. They were all in such a stir, trying to put a little spirit into the party. Somehow the fun seems to hang fire, though everything's there that a heart can desire, and I couldn't for my soul interfere and throw damp upon it. If t'was to save my life, I couldn't.' "'I suppose we had better all go in together,' said Samway gloomily. Perhaps I may have a chance of saying a word to Master." So the men entered the hall, which was the room selected and arranged for the gathering because of its size. The younger men and maids were at last just beginning to dance. Bathsheba had been perplexed how to act, for she was not much more than a slim young maid herself, and the weight of stateliness sat heavy upon her. 
Sometimes she thought she ought not to have come under any circumstances. Then she considered what cold unkindness that would have been, and finally resolved upon the middle course of staying for about an hour only, and gliding off unobserved, having from the first made up her mind that she could on no account dance, sing, or take any active part in the proceedings. Her allotted hour having been passed in chatting and looking on, Bathsheba told Liddy not to hurry herself and went on to the small parlour to prepare for departure, which, like the hall, was decorated with holly and ivy, and well lighted up. Nobody was in the room, but she had hardly been there a moment when the master of the house entered. "'Mrs. Troy, you are not going,' he said. "'We've hardly begun.' "'If you'll excuse me, I should like to go now.' Her manner was restive, for she remembered her promise, and imagined what he was about to say. "'But as it is not late,' she added, "'I can walk home and leave my man and Liddy to come when they choose.' "'I've been trying to get an opportunity of speaking to you,' said Boldwood. "'You know, perhaps, what I long to say.' Bathsheba silently looked on the floor. "'You do give it,' he said eagerly. "'What?' she whispered. "'Now that's evasion. Why, the promise. I don't want to intrude upon you at all.' or to let it become known to anybody. But do give your word. A mere business compact, you know, between two people who are beyond the influence of passion. Boldwood knew how false this picture was as regarded himself, but he had proved that it was the only tone in which she would allow him to approach her. A promise to marry me at the end of five years and three quarters. You owe it to me. I feel that I do, said Bathsheba. That is, if you demand it. But I am a changed woman an unhappy woman, and not—not—you are still a very beautiful woman," said Boldwood. Honesty and pure conviction suggested the remark, unaccompanied by any perception that it might have been adopted by blunt flattery to soothe and win her. However, it had not much effect now, for she said in a passionless murmur, which was in itself a proof of her words, I have no feeling in the matter at all and I don't at all know what is right to do in my difficult position, and I have nobody to advise me. But I give my promise, if I must. I give it as the rendering of a debt, conditionally, of course, on my being a widow. You'll marry me between five and six years hence? Don't press me too hard. I'll marry nobody else. But surely you will name the time, or there's nothing in the promise at all. Oh, I don't know. Pray let me go she said, her bosom beginning to rise, and I am afraid what to do. I want to be just to you, and to be that seems to be wronging myself, and perhaps it is breaking the commandments. There is considerable doubt of his death, and then it is dreadful. Let me ask a solicitor, Mr. Boldwood, if I ought or no. Say the words, dear one, and the subject shall be dismissed. A blissful, loving intimacy of six years, and then marriage. O oh, Bathsheba, say them he begged in a husky voice, unable to sustain the forms of mere friendship any longer. "'Promise yourself to me. I deserve it. Indeed I do, for I have loved you more than anybody in the world. And if I said hasty words and showed uncalled for heat of manner towards you, believe me, dear, I did not mean to distress you. I was in agony, Bathsheba, and I did not know what I said. You wouldn't let a dog suffer what I have suffered, could you but know it?' Sometimes I shrink from your knowing what I have felt for you, and sometimes I am distressed that all of it you never will know. Be gracious, and give up a little to me, when I would give up my life for you. 
The trimmings of her dress as they quivered against the light showed how agitated she was, and at last she burst out crying. "'And you'll not press me about anything more? If I say in five or six years?' She sobbed when she had the power to frame the words. "'Yes, then I leave it to time.' She waited a moment. "'Very well. I'll marry you in six years from this day, if we both live,' she said solemnly. "'And you'll take this as a token from me.' Boldwood had come close to her side, and now he clasped one of her hands in both of his, and lifted it to his breast. "'What is it? Oh, I cannot wear a ring!' she exclaimed on seeing what he held. "'Besides, I wouldn't have a soul know that it's an engagement, and perhaps it is improper. Besides, we are not engaged in the usual sense, are we? Don't insist, Mr. Boldwood, don't.' In her trouble at not being able to get her hand away from him at once, she stamped passionately on the floor with one foot, and tears crowded to her eyes again. "'It means a simple pledge, no sentiment, the seal of a practical compact,' he said more quietly, but still retaining her hand in his firm grasp. "'Come now,' and Boldwood slipped the ring on her finger. "'I cannot wear it,' she said, weeping as if her heart would break. "'You frighten me almost.' So wild a scheme. Please, let me go home. Only to-night. Wear it just to-night, to please me. Bathsheba sat down in a chair, and buried her face in a handkerchief, though Boldwood kept her hand yet. At length she said, in a sort of hopeless whisper, Very well, then. I will to-night, if you wish it so earnestly. Now loosen my hand. I will, indeed, I will wear it to-night. "'And it shall be the beginning of a pleasant secret courtship of six years, with a wedding at the end?' "'It must be, I suppose, since you will have it so,' she said, fairly beaten into non-resistance. Boldwood pressed her hand, and allowed it to drop in her lap. "'I am happy now,' he said. "'God bless you.' He left the room, and when he thought she might be sufficiently composed, sent one of the maids to her. Bathsheba cloaked the effects of the late scene as she best could, followed the girl, and in a few moments came downstairs with her hat and cloak on, ready to go. To get to the doors was necessary to pass through the hall, and before doing so she paused on the bottom of the staircase, which descended into one corner, to take a last look at the gathering. There was no music or dancing in progress just now. At the lower end, which had been arranged for the work-folk specially, a group conversed in whispers and with clouded looks. Boldwood was standing by the fireplace, and he too, though so absorbed in visions arising from her promise that he scarcely saw anything, seemed at that moment to observe their peculiar manner, and their looks askance. "'What is it you are in doubt about, men?' he said. One of them turned and replied uneasily. "'It was something Laban heard of, that's all, sir.' "'News?' "'Anybody married or engaged, born or dead?' inquired the farmer gaily. "'Tell it to us, Tall. One would think from your looks and mysterious ways that it was something very dreadful indeed.' "'Oh, no, sir, nobody is dead,' said Tall. "'I wish somebody was,' said Samway in a whisper. "'What do you say, Samway?' asked Boldwood somewhat sharply. "'If you have anything to say, speak out. If not, get up another dance.' "'Mrs. Troy has come downstairs,' said Samway to Tall. "'If you want to tell her, you had better do it now.' 
"'Do you know what they mean?' the farmer asked Bathsheba across the room. "'I don't in the least,' said Bathsheba. There was a smart rapping at the door. One of the men opened it instantly and went outside. "'Mrs. Troy is wanted,' he said on returning. "'Quite ready,' said Bathsheba, "'though I didn't tell them to send.' "'Is a stranger, ma'am,' said the man by the door. "'A stranger?' she said. "'Ask him to come in,' said Boldwood. The message was given, and Troy, wrapped up to his eyes as we have seen him, stood in the doorway. There was an unearthly silence, all looking towards the newcomer. Those who had just learnt that he was in the neighbourhood recognised him instantly. Those who did not were perplexed. Nobody noted Bathsheba. She was leaning on the stairs. Her brow had heavily contracted. Her whole face was pallid, her lips apart, her eyes rigidly staring at their visitor. Boldwood was one of those who did not notice that he was Troy. "'Come in, come in,' he repeated cheerfully, "'and drain a Christmas beaker with us, stranger.' Troy next advanced into the middle of the room, took off his cap, turned down his collar, and looked Boldwood in the face. Even then Boldwood did not recognise that the impersonator of heaven's persistent irony towards him, who had once before broken in upon his bliss, scourged him, and snatched his delight away, had come to do these things a second time. Troy began to laugh, a mechanical laugh. Boldwood recognised him now. Troy turned to Bathsheba. The poor girl's wretchedness at this time was beyond all fancy or narration. She had sunk down on the lowest stair, and there she sat, her mouth blue and dry, and her dark eyes fixed vacantly upon him, as if she wondered whether it were not all a terrible illusion. Then Troy spoke. Bathsheba! I have come for you." She made no reply. "'Come home with me. Come.' Bathsheba moved her feet a little, but did not rise. Troy went across to her. "'Come, madam, do you hear what I say?' he said peremptorily. A strange voice came from the fireplace, a voice sounding far off and confined, as if from a dungeon. Hardly a soul in the assembly recognised the thin tones to be those of Boldwood. Sudden despair had transformed him. Bathsheba, go with your husband. Nevertheless, she did not move. The truth was that Bathsheba was beyond the pale of activity, and yet not in a swoon. She was in a state of mental guta serena. Her mind was for the minute totally deprived of light. At the same time, no obscuration was apparent from without. Troy stretched out his hand to pull her towards him when she quickly shrank back. This visible dread of him seemed to irritate Troy, and he seized her by the arm and pulled it sharply. Whether his grasp pinched her, or whether his mere touch was the cause, was never known, but at the moment of his seizure she writhed, and gave a quick, low scream. The scream had been heard but a few seconds, when it was followed by a sudden deafening report that echoed through the room and stupefied them all. The oak partition shook with a concussion, and the place was filled with grey smoke. In bewilderment they turned their eyes to Boldwood. At his back, as he stood before the fireplace, was a gun-rack, as is usual in farmhouses, constructed to hold two guns. When Bathsheba had cried out in her husband's grasp, 
Boldwood's face of gnashing despair had changed. The veins had swollen, and a frenzied look had gleamed in his eye. He had turned quickly, taken one of the guns, cocked it, and at once discharged it at Troy. Troy fell. The distance apart of the two men was so small that the charge of shot did not spread in the least, but passed like a bullet into his body. He uttered a long, guttural sigh. There was a contraction, an extension. Then his muscles relaxed, and he lay still. Boldwood was seen through the smoke to be now again engaged with the gun. It was double-barrelled, and he had, meanwhile, in some way fastened his handkerchief to the trigger, and with his foot on the other end was in the act of turning the second barrel upon himself. Samway, his man, was the first to see this, and in the midst of the general horror darted up to him. Boldwood had already twitched the handkerchief, and the gun exploded a second time, sending its contents, by a timely blow from Samway, into the beam which crossed the ceiling. "'Well, it makes no difference,' Boldwood gasped. "'There is another way for me to die.' Then he broke from Samway, crossed the room to Bathsheba, and kissed her hand. He put on his hat, opened the door, and went into the darkness nobody thinking of preventing him. End of chapter 53chapter 54 of Far from the Madding Crowd This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy Chapter 54 After the Shock Boldwood passed into the high road, and turned in the direction of Casterbridge. Here he walked at an even, steady pace over Yalbury Hill, along the dead level beyond, mounted Melstock Hill, and between eleven and twelve o'clock crossed the moor into the town. The streets were nearly deserted now, and the waving lamp-flames only lighted up rows of grey shop-shutters, and strips of white paving upon which his step echoed as he passed along. He turned to the right and halted before an archway of heavy stonework, which was closed by an iron-studded pair of doors. This was the entrance to the gale, and over it a lamp was fixed, the light enabling the wretched traveller to find a bell-pull. The small wicket was at last opened, and a porter appeared. Boldwood stepped forward and said something in a low tone, when, after a delay, another man came. Boldwood entered, and the door was closed behind him, and he walked the world no more. Long before this time Weatherbury had been thoroughly aroused, and the wild deed which had terminated Boldwood's merry-making became known to all. Of those out of the house, Oak was one of the first to hear of the catastrophe, and when he entered the room, which was about five minutes after Boldwood's exit, the scene was terrible. All the female guests were huddled aghast against the walls like sheep in a storm, and the men were bewildered as to what to do. As for Bathsheba, she had changed. She was sitting on the floor beside the body of Troy, his head pillowed in her lap, where she had herself lifted it. With one hand she held her handkerchief to his breast, and covered the wound, though scarcely a single drop of blood had flowed, and with the other she tightly clasped one of his. The household convulsion had made her herself again. The temporary coma had ceased, and activity had come with the necessity for it. Deeds of endurance, which seem 
ordinary in philosophy, are rare in conduct, and Bathsheba was astonishing all around her now, for her philosophy was her conduct, and she seldom thought practicable what she could not practice. She was of the stuff of which great men's mothers are made. She was indispensable to high generation, hated at tea-parties, feared in shops and loved at crises. Troy, recumbent in his wife's lap, formed now the sole spectacle in the middle of the spacious room. "'Gabriel,' she said automatically, when he entered the room, turning up a face of which only the well-known lines remained to tell him it was hers, all else in the picture having faded quite. "'Write to Casterbridge instantly for a surgeon. It is, I believe, useless, but go. Mr. Boldwood has shot my husband.' Her statement of the fact, in such quiet and simple words, came with more force than a tragic declamation, and had somewhat the effect of setting the distorted images in each mind present into proper focus. Oak, almost before he had comprehended anything beyond the briefest abstract of the event, hurried out of the room, saddled a horse, and rode away. Not till he had ridden more than a mile did it occur to him that he would have done better by sending some other man on this errand, remaining himself in the house. What had become of Boldwood? He should have been looked after. Was he mad? Had there been a quarrel? Then how had Troy got there? Where had he come from? How did this remarkable reappearance affect itself, when he was supposed by many to be at the bottom of the sea? Oak had in some slight measure been prepared for the presence of Troy, by hearing a rumour of his return just before entering Boldwood's house. But before he had weighed that information, this fatal event had been superimposed. However, it was too late now to think of sending another messenger, and he rode on. In the excitement of these self-inquiries not discerning, when about three miles from Casterbridge, a square-figured pedestrian, passing along under the dark hedge in the same direction as his own. The miles necessary to be traversed, and other hindrances incidental to the lateness of the hour and the darkness of the night, delayed the arrival of Mr. Aldridge, the surgeon and more than three hours passed between the time at which the shot was fired and that of his entering the house. Oak was additionally detained in Casterbridge through having to give notice to the authorities of what had happened, and he then found that Boldwood had also entered the town and delivered himself up. In the meantime, the surgeon, having hastened to the hall at Boldwood's, found it in darkness and quite deserted. He went on to the back of the house, where he discovered in the kitchen an old man, of whom he made inquiries. "'She's had him took away to her own house, sir,' said his informant. "'Who has?' said the doctor. "'Mrs. Troy. I was quite dead, sir.' This was astonishing information. "'She had no right to do that,' said the doctor. "'There will have to be an inquest, and she should have waited to know what to do.' "'Yes, sir. It was hinted to her that she had better wait till the law was known. But she said law was nothing to her, and she wouldn't let her dear husband's corpse bide neglected for folks to stare at for all the crowners in England. Mr. Aldridge drove at once back again up the hill to Bathsheba's. The first person he met was poor Liddy, who seemed literally to have dwindled smaller in these few latter hours. "'What has been done?' he said. "'I don't know, sir,' said Liddy, with suspended breath. "'My mistress has done it all.' "'Where is she?' "'Upstairs with him, sir. "'When he was brought home and taken upstairs, "'she said she wanted no further help from the men. 
and then she called me, and made me fill the bath, and after that told me I had better go and lie down because I looked so ill. Then she locked herself into the room alone with him, and would not let a nurse come in, or anybody at all. But I thought I'd wait in the next room, in case she should want me. I heard her moving about inside for more than an hour, but she only came out once, and that was for more candles, because hers had burnt down into the socket. She said we were to let her know when you or Mr. Thirdly came, sir. Oak entered with the parson at this moment, and they all went upstairs together, preceded by Liddy Smallbury. Everything was silent as the grave when they paused on the landing. Liddy knocked, and Bathsheba's dress was heard rustling across the room. The key turned in the lock, and she opened the door. Her looks were calm and nearly rigid, like a slightly animated bust of Melpomene. "'Oh, Mr. Altridge, you have come at last,' she murmured from her lips merely, and threw back the door. "'Ah, and Mr. Thirdly. Well, all is done, and anybody in the world may see him now.' She then passed by him, crossed the landing, and entered another room. Looking into the chamber of death she had vacated, they saw, by the light of the candles which were on the drawers, a tall straight shape lying at the further end of the bedroom, wrapped in white. Everything around was quite orderly. The doctor went in, and after a few minutes returned to the landing again, where Oak and the parson still waited. "'It is all done, indeed, as she says,' remarked Mr. Aldrich, in a subdued voice. "'The body has been undressed and properly laid out in grave clothes. Gracious heaven, this mere girl! She must have the nerve of a stoic. The heart of a wife, merely.' floated in a whisper about the ears of the three, and turning they saw Bathsheba in the midst of them. Then, as if at that instant to prove that her fortitude had been more of will than spontaneity, she silently sank down between them, and was a shapeless heap of drapery on the floor. The simple consciousness that superhuman strain was no longer required had at once put a period to her power to continue it. They took her away to a further room, and the medical attendance which had been useless in Troy's case was invaluable in Bathsheba's, who fell into a series of fainting fits that had a serious aspect for a time. The sufferer was got to bed, and Oak, finding from the bulletins that nothing really dreadful was to be apprehended on her score, left the house. Liddy kept watch in Bathsheba's chamber, where she heard her mistress moaning in whispers through the dull, slow hours of that wretched night. "'Oh, it's my fault. How can I live?' O oh, heaven, how can I live? End of chapter 54chapter 55 of Far from the Madding Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter 55 The March Following. Bathsheba Boldwood. We passed rapidly on into the month of March, to a breezy day without sunshine, frost, or dew. On Yalbury Hill, about midway between Weatherbury and Casterbridge, where the turnpike road passes over the crest, a numerous concourse of people had gathered, the eyes of the greater number being frequently stretched afar in a northerly direction. The groups consisted of a throng of idlers, a party of javelin men, and two trumpeters, and in the midst were carriages, one of which contained the high sheriff. With the idlers, many of whom had mounted to the top of the cutting formed for the road, were several weatherbury men and boys, among others Poorgrass, Coggan, and Cane Ball. 
At the end of half an hour a faint dust was seen in the expected quarter, and shortly after a travelling carriage, bringing one of the two judges on the western circuit, came up the hill and halted on the top. The judge changed carriages whilst a flourish was blown by the big-cheeked trumpeters, and, a procession being formed of the vehicles and javelin men, they all proceeded towards the town, excepting the weathery men, who, as soon as they had seen the judge move off, returned again home to their work. "'Joseph, I see you squeezing close to the carriage,' said Coggan as they walked. "'Did you notice my lord judge's face?' "'I did,' said poor Grass. "'I looked hard at him, as if I would read his very soul, and there was mercy in his eyes, or, to speak with the exact truth required of us at this solemn time, in the eye that was towards me.' "'Well, I hope for the best,' said Coggan, "'though bad that must be.' However, I shan't go to the trial, and I'd advise the rest of you that Bain't wanted to bide away. Twill disturb his mind more than anything to see us there staring at him as if he were a show. The very thing I said this morning, observed Joseph. Justice has come to weigh him in the balances. I said in my reflectious way, and if he's found wanting, so be it unto him. And a bystander said, Hear, hear, a man who can talk like that ought to be heard, but I don't like dwelling upon it. For my few words are my few words, and not much, though the speech of some men is rumoured abroad, as though by nature formed for such. And so tis, Joseph. And now, neighbours, as I said, every man bide at home. The resolution was adhered to, and all waited anxiously for the news next day. Their suspense was diverted, however, by a discovery which was made in the afternoon, throwing more light on Boldwood's conduct and condition than any details which had preceded it. That he had been, from the time of Greenhill Fair until the fatal Christmas Eve, in excited and unusual moods, was known to those who had been intimate with him. But nobody imagined that there had shown in him unequivocal symptoms of the mental derangement which Bathsheba and Oak, alone of all others at different times, had momentarily suspected. In a locked closet was now discovered an extraordinary collection of articles. There were several sets of ladies' dresses in the piece, of sundry expensive materials, silks and satins, poplins and velvets, all of colours which, from Bathsheba's style of dress, might have been judged to be her favourites. There were two muffs, sable and ermine. Above all, there was a case of jewellery, containing four heavy gold bracelets and several lockets and rings, all of fine quality and manufacture. These things had been bought in Bath, and other towns from time to time, and brought home by stealth. They were all carefully packed in paper, and each package was labelled Bathsheba Boldwood, a date being subjoined six years in advance in every instance. These somewhat pathetic evidences of a mind crazed with care and love were the subject of discourse in Warren's Malthouse when Oak entered, from Casterbridge with tidings of sentence. He came in the afternoon and his face, as the kiln-glow shone upon it, told the tale sufficiently well. Boldwood, as everyone now supposed he would do, had pleaded guilty, and had been sentenced to death. The conviction that Boldwood had not been morally responsible for his latter acts now became general. Facts elicited previous to the trial had pointed strongly in the same direction, but they had not been of sufficient weight to lead to an order for an examination into the state of Boldwood's mind. It was astonishing, now that a presumption of insanity was raised, how many collateral circumstances were remembered, 
to which a condition of mental disease seemed to afford the only explanation, among others the unprecedented neglect of his corn-stacks in the previous summer. A petition was addressed to the Home Secretary, advancing the circumstances which appeared to justify a request for a reconsideration of the sentence. It was not numerously signed by the inhabitants of Casterbridge, as is usual in such cases, for Boldwood had never made many friends over the counter. The shops thought it very natural of a man who, by importing direct from the producer, had daringly set aside the first great principle of provincial existence, namely that God had made country villages to supply customers to country towns, should have confused ideas about the Decalogue. The prompters were a few merciful men, who had, perhaps, too, feelingly considered the facts latterly unearthed and the result was that evidence was taken which it was hoped might remove the crime, in the moral point of view, out of the category of willful murder, and lead it to be regarded as a sheer outcome of madness. The upshot of the petition was waited for in Weatherbury with solicitous interest. The execution had been fixed for eight o'clock on a Saturday morning, about a fortnight after the sentence was passed, and up to Friday afternoon no answer had been received. At that time Gabriel came from Castlebridge Gale, whither he had been to wish Boldwood good-bye, and turned down a by-street to avoid the town. When he passed the last house he heard a hammering, and lifted his bowed head as he looked back for a moment. Over the chimneys he could see the upper part of the Gale entrance, rich and glowing in the afternoon sun, and some moving figures were there. There were carpenters, lifting a post into vertical position within the parapet. He withdrew his eyes quickly, and hastened on. It was dark when he reached home, and half the village was out to meet him. "'No tidings,' said Gabriel wearily. "'And I'm afraid there's no hope. I've been with him more than two hours.' "'Do you think he really was out of his mind when he did it?' said Smallbury. "'I can't honestly say that I do,' Oak replied. "'However, that we can talk of another time. Has there been any change in mistress this afternoon?' "'None at all. Is she downstairs?' "'No, and getting on so nicely as she was, too. She's but very little better now again than she was at Christmas. She keeps on asking if you be come, and if there's news, till one's wearied out with answering her. Shall I go and say you've come?' "'No,' said Oak. "'There's a chance yet. But I couldn't stay in town any longer, after seeing him, too. So Laban—Laban Laban is here, isn't he?' "'Yes.' said Tall. "'What I've arranged is that you shall ride to town the last thing to-night, leave here about nine, and wait a while there, getting home about twelve. If nothing has been received by eleven o'clock to-night, they say there's no chance at all.' "'I do so hope his life will be spared,' said Liddy. "'If it's not, she'll go out of her mind too. Poor thing, her sufferings have been dreadful. She deserves anybody's pity.' "'Is she altered much?' said Coggan. "'If you haven't seen poor mistress since Christmas, you wouldn't know her,' said Liddy. "'Her eyes are so miserable that she's not the same woman. "'Only two years ago she was a romping girl, and now she's this.' Laban departed as directed, and at eleven o'clock that night several of the villagers strolled along the road to Casterbridge and waited his arrival, among them Oak, and nearly all the rest of Bathsheba's men. Gabriel's anxiety was great that Boldwood might be saved, even though in his conscience he felt that he ought to die, for there had been qualities in the farmer which Oak loved. 
At last, when they all were weary, the tramp of a horse was heard in the distance. First dead, as if on turf it trode, then clattering on the village road, in another pace than forth he rode. "'We shall soon know now, one way or other,' said Coggan, and they all stepped down from the bank on which they had been standing, into the road, and the rider pranced into the midst of them. Is that you, Laban?' said Gabriel. "'Yes, tis come. He's not to die. Tis confinement during Her Majesty's pleasure.' "'Hurray!' said Coggan, with a swelling heart. "'God's above the devil yet.'" End of chapter 55"'Chapter 56 of Far From the Madding Crowd. "'This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. "'Recording by Tyg Hines. "'Far From the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. "'Chapter 56. "'Beauty and Loneliness. After all.' "'Bathsheba revived with the spring.' The utter prostration that had followed her low fever from which she had suffered diminished perceptibly when all uncertainty upon every subject had come to an end. But she remained alone now for the greater part of her time, and stayed in the house, or at furthest went into the garden. She shunned every one, even Liddy, and could be brought to make no confidences, and to ask for no sympathy. As the summer drew on, she passed more and more of her time in the open air, and began to examine into farming matters from sheer necessity, though she never rode out or personally superintended as at former times. One Friday evening in August she walked a little way along the road, and entered the village for the first time since the sombre events of the preceding Christmas. None of the old colour had as yet come to her cheek, and its absolute paleness was heightened by the jet-black of her gown, till it appeared preternatural. When she reached a little shop at the other end of the place, which stood nearly opposite to the churchyard, Bathsheba heard singing inside the church, and she knew that the singers were practising. She crossed the road, opened the gate, and entered the graveyard. The high sills of the church windows effectually screened her from the eyes of those gathered within. Her stealthy walk was to the nook wherein Troy had worked at planting flowers upon Fanny Robin's grave, and she came to the marble tombstone. A motion of satisfaction enlivened her face as she read the complete inscription. First came the words of Troy himself. Erected by Francis Troy, in beloved memory of Fanny Robin, who died October ninth, eighteen-something, aged twenty years. Underneath this was now inscribed in new letters— in the same grave lie the remains of the aforesaid Francis Troy, who died December twenty-fourth, eighteen-something, aged twenty-six years. Whilst she stood and read and meditated, the tones of the organ began again in the church, and she went with the same light step round to the porch and listened. The door was closed, and the choir was learning a new hymn. Bathsheba was stirred by emotions which latterly she had assumed to be altogether dead within her. The little attenuated voices of the children brought to her ear, in distinct utterance, the words they sang without thought or comprehension. Lead, kindly light, amid the encircling gloom, lead thou me on. Bathsheba's feeling was always to some extent dependent upon her whim, as is the case with many other women. Something big came into her throat, and an uprising to her eyes, and she thought that she would allow the imminent tears to flow if they wished. 
They did flow, and plenteously, and one fell upon the stone bench beside her. Once that she had begun to cry, for she hardly knew what, she could not leave off for crowding thoughts she knew too well. She would have given anything in the world to be, as those children were, unconcerned at the meaning of their words, because too innocent to feel the necessity for any such expression. All the impassioned scenes of her brief experience seemed to revive with added emotion at that moment, and those scenes which had been without emotion during enactment had emotion then. Yet grief came to her rather as a luxury than as a scourge of former times. Owing to Bathsheba's face being buried in her hands, she did not notice a form which came quietly into the porch, and on seeing her first moved as if to retreat, then paused and regarded her. Bathsheba did not raise her head for some time, and when she looked round her face was wet, and her eyes drowned and dim. "'Mr. Oak!' exclaimed she, disconcerted. "'How long have you been here?' "'A few minutes, ma'am,' said Oak respectfully. "'Are you going in?' said Bathsheba, and there came from within the church as from a prompter. "'I loved the garish day, and, spite of fears, pride ruled my will. Remember not past years.' "'I was,' said Gabriel. "'I am one of the bass singers, you know. "'I have sung bass for several months.' "'Indeed, I wasn't aware of that. "'I'll leave you, then.' "'Which I have loved long since and lost a while,' sang the children. "'Don't let me drive you away, mistress. "'I think I won't go in to-night.' "'Oh, no, you don't drive me away.' Then they stood in a state of some embarrassment, Bathsheba trying to wipe her dreadfully drenched and inflamed face without his noticing her. At length Oak said, "'I've not seen you—I mean, spoken to you—since ever so long, have I?' But he feared to bring distressing memories back, and interrupted himself with, "'Were you going into the church?' "'No,' she said. "'I came to see the tombstone privately, to see if they had cut the inscription as I wished. "'Mr. Oak, you needn't mind speaking to me, if you wish to, on the matter which is in both of our minds at this moment.' "'And have they done it as you wished?' said Oak. Yes, come and see it, if you have not already. So together they went and read the tomb. Eight months ago, Gabriel murmured when he saw the date. It seems like yesterday to me. And to me, as if it were years ago, long years, and I had been dead between. And now I am going home, Mr. Oak. Oak walked after her. I wanted to name a small matter to you as soon as I could, he said with hesitation. "'Merely about business, and I think I may just mention it now, if you'll allow me.' "'Oh, yes, certainly.' "'It is that I may soon have to give up the management of your farm, Mrs. Troy. The fact is, I'm thinking of leaving England. Not yet, you know, next spring.' "'Leaving England?' she said in surprise and genuine disappointment. "'Why, Gabriel, what are you going to do that for?' "'Well, I've thought it best,' Oak stammered out. "'California is the spot I've had in mind to try.' "'But it is understood everywhere that you are going to take poor Mr. Boldwood's farm on your own account.' "'I have had the refusal of it, tis true. But nothing is settled yet, and I have reasons for giving up. I shall finish out my year there as manager for the trustees, but no more.' "'And what shall I do without you? Oh, Gabriel, I don't think you ought to go away.' You've been with me so long, through bright times and dark times, such old friends as we are, that it seems unkind almost. I had fancied that if you leased the other farmer's master you might still give a helping look across at mine. And now, 
going away.' "'I would have willingly.' "'Yet now that I am more helpless than ever you go away?' "'Yes, that's the ill fortune of it,' said Gabriel in a distressed tone. "'And it is because of that very helplessness that I feel bound to go. "'Good afternoon, ma'am,' he concluded, in evident anxiety to get away, and at once went out of the churchyard by a path she could follow on no pretense whatever. Bathsheba went home, her mind occupied with a new trouble, which, being rather harassing than deadly, was calculated to do good by diverting her from the chronic gloom of her life. She was set thinking a great deal about Oak, and of his wish to shun her, and there occurred to Bathsheba several incidents of her latter intercourse with him, which, trivial when singly viewed, amounted together to a perceptible disinclination for her society. It broke upon her at length, as a great pain, that her last old disciple was about to forsake her and flee. He, who had believed in her and argued on her side, when all the rest of the world was against her, had at last, like the others, become weary and neglectful of the old cause, and was leaving her to fight her battles alone. Three weeks went on, and more evidence of his want of interest in her was forthcoming. She noticed that instead of entering the small parlour or office where the farm accounts were kept, and waiting or leaving a memorandum, as he had hitherto done during her seclusion, Oak never came at all when she was likely to be there, only entering at unseasonable hours when her presence in that part of the house was least to be expected. Whenever he wanted directions he sent a message, or note with neither heading nor signature, to which she was obliged to reply in the same off-hand style. Poor Bathsheba began to suffer now from the most torturing sting of all, a sensation that she was despised. The autumn wore away gloomily enough amid these melancholy conjectures, and Christmas Day came, completing a year of her legal widowhood, and two years and a quarter of her life alone. On examining her heart, it appeared beyond measure strange that the subject of which the season might have supposed suggestive, the event in the hall at Boldwoods, was not agitating her at all, but instead an agonising conviction that everybody abjured her, for what she could not tell, and that Oak was the ringleader of the recusants. Coming out of the church that day she looked round in hope that Oak, whose bass voice she had heard rolling out from the gallery overhead in a most unconcerned manner, might chance to linger in her path in the old way. There he was, as usual, coming down the path behind her, but on seeing Bathsheba turn he looked aside, and as soon as he got beyond the gate, and there was the barest excuse for a divergence, he made one and vanished. The next morning brought the culminating stroke. She had been expecting it long. It was a formal notice by letter from him that he should not renew his engagement with her for the following Lady Day. Bathsheba actually sat and cried over this letter most bitterly. She was aggrieved and wounded that the possession of hopeless love from Gabriel, which she had grown to regard as her inalienable right for life, should have been withdrawn just at his own pleasure in this way. She was bewildered too by the prospect of having to rely on her own resources again. It seemed to herself that she never could again acquire energy sufficient to go to market, barter and sell. Since Troy's death, Oak had attended all sales and fairs for her, transacting her business at the same time with his own. What should she do now? Her life was becoming a desolation. So desolate was Bathsheba this evening, that in an absolute hunger for pity and sympathy, and miserable in that she appeared to have outlived the only true friendship she had ever owned, she put on her bonnet and cloak, 
and went down to Oak's house just after sunset, guided on her way by the pale primrose rays of a crescent moon a few days old. A lively firelight shone from the window, but nobody was visible in the room. She tapped nervously, and then thought it doubtful if it were right for a single woman to call upon a bachelor who lived alone, although he was her manager, and she might be supposed to call on business without any real impropriety. Gabriel opened the door, and the moon shone upon his forehead. "'Mr. Oak,' said Bathsheba, faintly. "'Yes, I am Mr. Oak,' said Gabriel. "'Who have I the honour—oh, how stupid of me, not to know you, mistress!' "'I shall not be your mistress much longer, shall I, Gabriel?' she said in pathetic tones. "'Well, no, I suppose. But come in, ma'am. Oh, and I'll get a light,' Oak replied with some awkwardness. "'No, not on my account.' "'It is so seldom that I get a lady visitor that I'm afraid I haven't proper accommodation. Will you sit down, please? Uh, here's a chair, and there's one too. I'm sorry that my chairs all have wood seats and are rather hard, but I was thinking of getting some new ones.' Oak placed two or three for her. "'They are quite easy enough for me.' So down she sat, and down sat he, the fire dancing in their faces and upon the old furniture. All is sheenin with long years o' handlin'. That formed Oak's array of household possessions, which sent back a dancing reflection in reply. It was very odd to these two persons, who knew each other passing well, that the mere circumstance of their meeting in a new place and in a new way should make them so awkward and constrained. In the fields or at her house there had never been any embarrassment, but now that Oak had become the entertainer their lives seemed to be moved back again to the days when they were strangers. "'You'll think it strange that I have come, but—' "'Oh, no, not at all.' "'But I thought—Gabriel, I have been uneasy in the belief that I have offended you, and that you are going away on that account. It grieved me very much, and I couldn't help coming.' "'Offended me? As if you could do that, Bathsheba.' "'Haven't I?' she asked gladly. "'But what are you going away for else?' I am not going to emigrate now, you know. I wasn't aware that you would wish me not to when I told you, or I shouldn't have thought of doing it," he said simply. I have arranged for Little Weatherbury Farm, and shall have it in my own hands at Lady Day. You know I've had a share in it for some time. Still, that wouldn't prevent my attending to your business as before, hadn't it been that things have been said about us. What? said Bathsheba in surprise. Things said about you and me? What are they? I cannot tell you. "'Twould be wiser if you were to, I think. You have played the part of mentor to me many times, and I don't see why you should fear to do it now. It is nothing that you have done this time. The top and tail of it is this, that I am sniffing about here, and waiting for poor Boldwood's farm, with the thought of getting you some day." "'Getting me? What does that mean?' "'Marrying of ye in plain British. You asked me to tell, so you mustn't blame me. Bathsheba did not look quite so alarmed as if a cannon had been discharged by her ear, which was what Oak had expected. "'Marrying me? I didn't know it was what you meant,' she said quietly. "'Such a thing as that is too absurd, uh, too soon, to think of by far.' "'Yes, of course it's too absurd. I don't desire any such thing. I should think that was plain enough by this time. Surely, surely you be the last person in the world I think of marrying.' It's too absurd, as you say. Too soon were the words I used. 
I must beg your pardon for correcting you, but you said too absurd, and so do I. I beg your pardon, too, she returned with tears in her eyes. Too soon, that's what I said. But it doesn't matter a bit, not at all. But I only meant too soon. Indeed, I didn't, Mr. Oak, and you must believe me. Gabriel looked her long in the face, but the firelight being faint there was not much to be seen. Bathsheba, he said tenderly, and in surprise, and coming closer. If I only knew one thing, whether you would allow me to love you and win you and marry you after all, if I only knew that. But you never will know, she murmured. Why? Because you never ask. Oh, oh, said Gabriel, with a low laugh of joyousness, my own dear. You ought not to have sent me that harsh letter this morning, she interrupted. It shows you didn't care a bit about me, and were ready to desert me like all the rest of them. It was very cruel of you, considering I was the first sweetheart that you ever had, and that you were the first I ever had, and I shall not forget it. Now, Bathsheba, was ever anybody so provoking? he said, laughing. You know it was purely that I, as an unmarried man, carrying on a business for you as a very taking young woman, had a proper hard part to play. More particular, that people knew I had a sort of feeling for ye, and I fancied, from the way we were mentioned together, that it might injure your good name. Nobody knows the heat and fret I have been caused by it. And was that all? All. Oh, how glad I am I came! she exclaimed thankfully, as she rose from her seat. I have thought so much more of you since I fancied you did not even want to see me again. But I must be going now, or I shall be missed. Why, Gabriel, she said with a slight laugh, as they went to the door, it seems exactly as if I had come courting you. How dreadful! And quite right, too, said Oak. I've danced at your skittish heels, my beautiful Bathsheba, for many a long mile and many a long day and it is hard to begrudge me this one visit." He accompanied her up the hill, explaining to her the details of his forthcoming tenure on the other farm. They spoke very little of their mutual feeling, pretty phrases and warm expressions being probably unnecessary between such tried friends. Theirs was that substantial affection which arises, if any arises at all, when the two who are thrown together begin first by knowing the rougher sides of each other's character, and not the best till further on the romance growing up in the interstices of a mass of hard prosaic reality. This good fellowship, a camaraderie, usually occurring through similarity of pursuits, is unfortunately seldom superadded to love between the sexes, because men and women associate not in their labours, but in their pleasures merely. Where, however, happy circumstance permits its development, the compounded feeling proves itself to be the only love which is strong as death that love which many waters cannot quench, nor the floods drown, besides which the passion usually called by the name is evanescent as steam. End of chapter 56《Chapter 57 A Foggy Night and Morning Conclusion The most private, secret, plainest wedding that it is possible to have. 
These had been Bathsheba's words to Oak one evening, some time after the event of the preceding chapter, and he meditated a full hour by the clock upon how to carry out her wishes to the letter. "'A license. Oh, yes, there must be a license,' he said to himself at last. "'Very well, then. First a license.' On a dark night, a few days later, Oak came with mysterious steps from the surrogate's door in Casterbridge. On the way home he heard a heavy tread in front of him, and, overtaking the man, found him to be Coggan. They walked together into the village until they came to a little lane behind the church, leading down to the cottage of Laban Tall, who had lately been installed as a clerk of the parish, and was yet in mortal terror at church on Sundays when he heard his lone voice among certain hard words of the Psalms, whither no man ventured to follow him. "'Well, good-night, Coggan,' said Oak. "'I'm going down this way.' "'Oh?' said Coggan, surprised. "'What's going on to-night, then? Make so bold, Mr. Oak.' It seemed rather ungenerous not to tell Coggan, under the circumstances, for Coggan had been true as steel all through the time of Gabriel's unhappiness about Bathsheba, and Gabriel said, "'You can keep a secret, Coggan.' "'You've proved me, and you know.' "'Yes, I have, and I do know. Well, then, Mistress and I mean to get married to-morrow morning.' "'Heaven's high tower! And yet I've thought of such a thing from time to time. True, I have.' but keeping it so close. Well, there, tis no concern of mine, and I wish ye joy o' her. Thank you, Coggan. But I assure ye that this great hush is not what I wish for at all, or what either of us would have wished if it hadn't been for certain things that would make a gay wedding seem hardly the thing. Bathsheba has a great wish that all in the parish shall not be in the church looking at her. She's shy-like, and nervous about it. In fact, so I'd be doing this to humour her. Aye, I see, quite right too, I suppose I must say. And you be now going down to the clerk? Yes, you may as well come with me. I'm afeard your labour in keeping it close will be throwed away, said Coggan as they walked along. Labe Tall's old woman'll horn it all over the parish in half an hour. So she will. Pon my life I never thought of that, said Oak, pausing. Yet I must tell him to-night, I suppose, for he's working so far off and leaves early. "'I'll tell you how we could tackle her,' said Coggan. "'I'll knock and ask to speak to Laban outside the door, you standing in the background. "'Then he'll come out, and you can tell your tale. "'She'll never guess what I want him for, "'and I'll make up a few words about the farm-work as a blind.' "'This scheme was considered feasible, "'and Coggan advanced boldly and rapped at Mrs. Tall's door. "'Mrs. Tall herself opened it. "'I wanted to have a word with Laban.' "'He's not at home, and won't be this side of eleven o'clock. "'He've been forced to go over to Yalbury since shutting out work. "'Shall I do quite as well?' "'I hardly think you will. Stop a moment.' "'And Coggan stepped round the corner of the porch to consult Oak. "'Who's t'other man, then?' said Mrs. Tall. "'Only a friend,' said Coggan. "'Say he's wanted to meet Mistress near Church Hatch to-morrow morning at ten, said Oak in a whisper. "'that he must come without fail and wear his best clothes.' "'The clothes will floor us as safe as houses,' said Coggan. "'It can't be helped,' said Oak. "'Tell her.' So Coggan delivered the message. "'Mind, het or wet, blow or snow, he must come,' added Jan. "'Tis very particular indeed. 
the fact is tis to witness or sign some law work about taking shares with another farmer for a long span of years there that's what it is and now i've told thee mother tall in a way i shouldn't have done if i hadn't loved thee so hopeless well coggan retired before she could ask any further and next they called at the vicar's in a manner which excited no curiosity at all then gabriel went home and prepared for the morrow liddy said bathsheba on going to bed that night i want you to call me at seven o'clock to-morrow in case i shouldn't wake but you always do wake afore then ma'am yes but i have something important to do which i'll tell you of when the time comes and it's best to make sure bathsheba however awoke voluntarily at four nor could she by any contrivance get back to sleep again about six being quite positive that her watch had stopped during the night she could wait no longer she went and tapped at liddy's door and after some labour awoke her but i thought it was i had to call you said the bewildered liddy and it isn't six yet indeed it is how can you tell such a story liddy i know it must be ever so much past seven come to my room as soon as you can i want you to give my hair a good brushing when liddy came to bathsheba's room her mistress was already waiting liddy could not understand this extraordinary promptness whatever is going on ma'am she said well i'll tell you said bathsheba with a mischievous smile in her bright eyes farmer oak is coming here to dine with me to-day farmer oak and nobody else you two alone yes but is it safe ma'am after what's been said asked her companion dubiously a woman's good name is such a perishable article that bathsheba laughed with a flushed cheek and whispered in liddy's ear although there was nobody present liddy stared and exclaimed souls alive what news it makes my heart go quite bumpity bump it makes mine rather furious too said bathsheba however there's no getting out of it now it was a damp disagreeable morning nevertheless at twenty minutes to ten o'clock oak came out of his house and went up the hillside with that sort of stride a man puts out when walking in search of a bride and knocked at bathsheba's door ten minutes later a large and a smaller umbrella might have been seen moving from the same door and through the mists along the road to the church the distance was not more than quarter of a mile and these two sensible persons deemed it unnecessary to drive an observer must have been very close indeed to discover that the forms under the umbrellas were those of Oak and Bathsheba, arm in arm for the first time in their lives, Oak in a greatcoat extending to his knees, and Bathsheba in a cloak that reached her clogs. Yet, though so plainly dressed, there was a certain rejuvenated appearance about her, as though a rose should shut and be a bud again. Repose had again incarnadined her cheeks and having at gabriel's request arranged her hair this morning as she had worn it years ago on norcombe hill she seemed in his eyes remarkably like a girl of that fascinating dream which considering that she was now only three or four-and-twenty was perhaps not very wonderful in the church were tall liddy and the parson and in a remarkably short space of time the deed was done the two sat down very quietly to tea in bathsheba's parlour in the evening of the same day for it had been arranged that farmer oak should go to live there since he had as yet neither money house nor furniture worthy of the name 
though he was on a sure way towards them, whilst Bathsheba was, comparatively, in a plethora of all three. Just as Bathsheba was pouring out a cup of tea, their ears were greeted by the firing of a cannon, followed by what seemed like a tremendous blowing of trumpets in front of the house. "'There,' said Oak, laughing, "'I knew those fellows were up to something, by the look on their faces.' Oak took up the light and went into the porch, followed by Bathsheba with a shawl over her head. The rays fell upon a group of male figures, gathered upon the gravel in front, who, when they saw the newly married couple on the porch, set up a loud hurrah, and at the same moment bang again went the cannon in the background, followed by a hideous clang of music from a drum, tambourine, clarinet, serpent, hautboy, tenor viol, and double bass, the only remaining relics of the true and original Weatherbury band venerable worm-eaten instruments which had celebrated in their own persons the victories of marlborough under the fingers of the forefathers of those who play them now the performers came forward and marched up to the front those bright boys mark clark and jan are at the bottom of all this said oak come in souls and have something to eat and drink with me and my wife not to-night said mr clark with evident self-denial thank ye all the same but we'll call at a more seemly time. However, we couldn't think of letting the day pass without a note of admiration of some sort. If you could send a drop of summit down to Warren's, why, so it is. Here's long life and happiness to neighbour Oak and his comely bride. Thank ye, thank ye all, said Gabriel. A bit and a drop shall be sent to Warren's for ye at once. I had a thought that we might be very likely to get a salute of some sort from our old friends, and I was saying so to my wife, but now— Fate said Coggan in a critical tone, turning to his companions, "The man have learned to say my wife in a wonderful natural way, considering how youthful he is in wedlock as yet. Eh, neighbours all, I never heard a skilful old married feller of twenty years standing pipe my wife in a more used note than it did," said Jacob Smallbury. "It might have been a little more truer to nature if it had been spoke a little chillier, but that wasn't to be expected just now." "'That improvement will come with time,' said Jan, twirling his eye. Then Oak laughed, and Bathsheba smiled, for she never laughed readily now, and their friends turned to go. "'Yes, I suppose that's the size of it,' said Joseph Poorgrass, with a cheerful sigh as they moved away. "'And I wish him joy o'er, though I were once or twice upon saying to-day with holy Hosea, in my scripture manner, which is my second nature.' Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. But since tis as tis, why, it might have been worse, and I feel my thanks accordingly. End of chapter 57 End of Far from the Madding Crowd